theyeshiva.net. Good morning, everybody. So if you want to know what was the nature of the relationship between Adam and Chava, so the Torah says nothing about the actual relationship and the connection between them. But the Torah just says a few words about what was behind the marriage. That Adam said that finally, this time it's a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And, and Isha is called Isha because it comes from the word Ish. And the Torah says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and become one flesh that's the uh, ramifications of Adam Harishan's words that finally it's a flesh of my, a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh what was actually their type of relationship how did they interact with each other that the Torah doesn't say we know that when Chava ate she fed her husband as well but that's not true only about Chava That's it. That's that's what we know. That she ate and she gave her husband to eat. Okay, very nice. It's a nice thing of a non-Jewish woman to do. Chava wasn't Jewish. If you come to the marriage of Avram and Sarah, what do we know about it? We also don't know anything about the relationship. All we know is that when Sarah passed away, Avram came to cry. That's it we know. You can imagine, you can anticipate, you can uh, analyze, you can dissect. They journey together through a very uh, courageous and difficult and blessed and challenging and triumphant life. But what we know actually explicitly about the connection is that Avraham, after she passes away, comes to Kiryat Arba, where she died, Hevron, to eulogize her and to weep. What do we know about yeah? Don't we know also that she listened to him when she went when he told her to say that she yeah. was his, his, when she his, when he uh, asked her that she's to say she's a sister she acquiesced and when she told him to expel Yishmael he, he, he didn't he acquiesce God told him that whatever Sarah tells you you should listen to her mm-hmm. okay but again that's commandment that Hashem gave him we're talking here about the actual connection between them we don't know anymore. When it comes to Yitzchak and Rivka, what do we know about their connection? So here the Torah gives us one Pasuk. Mamish, one Pasuk. And from that Pasuk, we can probably deduce a lot, but no more than one verse. Yitzchak brought her home to the tent of Sarah, his mother. He married her. She became his wife. And he loved her. And he was comforted for his mother's death. So what do we know about Yitzchak and Rivka? One word. And he had Ava to her. Okay. It's not a small thing. It says he loved her. How you want to explain it? Whatever you want. I'm just telling you what it says. I don't take responsibility. I'm just telling you what it says. It's not my, don't blame me. I didn't do anything. I could really take responsibility for my own life. I'm not going to take for other people's lives. <laughs> um, so that's Yitzchak and Rivka. 
One word, that's all we know about the relationship. I mean, we know that they disagreed about their children or whatever. Rivka loved Yaakov, Yitzchak loved Esav. But as far as their connection with each other, he cherished him. So that's what we know about Yitzchak and Rivka, right? So I went from Adam to Chava, I went from Avram to Sarah, and I went from Yitzchak to Rivka. This place here, you could sit here. Say Rebetzin, the Kenzich Zatzin Da. Oh, oh, oh! Here, here, you could sit here. I'll sit here. I'll sit there. You can stand there. Whoa! You all right? I'm fine. I'm fine. You could sit here. I'm telling you, could sit here. What do we know about Yaakov and Rachel? So here the Torah gives us another two words, not more. Yaakov was traveling and he came to a well. And what happens when he comes to the well? Rachel comes with the sheep, right? Yaakov sees her. He gives her flock water. And then we know Vayishak Yaakov Lerachel Vayisas Koylei Vayefk Yaakov kissed Rachel and then he wept. Why he wept? The pasuk doesn't say. There was once a, uh, a certain rabbi who said he wept when he realized that he kissed a girl. So he wanted to do tshuva. So he started to cry. So they told it over to the Geri Rebbe, the Beis Yisrael. He said, ah, he cried because he knew that one day there'll be a rabbi who will interpret his kiss the way he would interpret his own. That's why Yaakov was crying. Just the Geri Rebbe once said. Why he cried, it doesn't say why he cried. That's what we know. They met. Apparently Yaakov and Rachel were affected by each other. And then it says, Vayev Yaakov is Rachel. Yaakov loved Rachel and he wanted to marry her and uh, he worked seven years for it. What about Leah? The relationship between Yaakov and Leah, we have one word for it. It says, Vayev Gam es Rachel mi Leah. He loved also Rachel, which implies that he also loved Leah because you can't say Gam if you don't have the first. But then it says Mileya, which means Rachel's the, the connection to Rachel was deeper than the connection was more passionate than the connection to Leah. That's it. Bila and Zilpa, we don't see any connection as far as emotions. And uh, the same is true with the marriages that follow it. For example, Moshe and Sipira, says Moshe married her. Aaron and Elisheva, um, he married her. And the other marriages in the Torah, they're just described as facts. They got married and built families. But that's it. So Adam and Chava just says, she's my flip part of me. Avram and Sarah, we just know he cried when she died. Yitzchak, it says one word, he loved her. Yaakov, there was a kiss, there was a weep, there was weeping, and he loved her. And Leah also, but not as much as Rachel.
Now come. Why is the Torah so? Uh, I'm not going to use the word stingy, but why sparse. is it so sparse with its words? And the answer is because it's none of our business. <laughs> Simply speaking, yeah. Although there's a yenta in everybody, the little inner yenta, but it's really none of anybody's business. Sachakel. Not what happened between Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, Yaakov and Rachel, Yaakov and Leah. Your business is what's happening by you. Or to put it in more traditional terms, and the Torah is Milashon Haira, which means it's a lesson. It doesn't just tell stories to entertain and engage people. It tells stories that are relevant to people's lives. What's relevant to know is what it says. What it doesn't say is not relevant. What actually happened, it's not relevant to you, so it doesn't say not a novel that just describes scenes for engagement. You get what I said till now? With this context and this backdrop, it's absolutely stunning and shocking to read the adjectives that describe the feelings from Shechem to Dina in the portion of Ayishlach. Shem sees, Shem is the son of Hamar, the leader of, uh, of Shem. He sees Dina, the first thing he does something, he abducts her and he violates her. Now words, Batidbak Nafshay, Bidina Bas His soul has Dveikus, you ever heard the word Dveikus? Dovuk, huh? Klingin. Lihisdabek. Dvekus means cleaving. Devek, as a glue. His soul, not his body. Not his body. Batidbak nafshoi bedina bas Yaakov. His soul has Dvekus cleaving to Dina, the daughter of Yaakov. Okay? <laughs> That's not bad. Vayyavesanara. And he loves the young woman. He speaks to the heart of the young woman. doesn't say he speaks to her mouth, he speaks to her face, he speaks to her heart. This itself is already far greater, the, the words used, than any other legal marriage in Chumash. Now... Hamar, the father, comes to speak to Yaakov to negotiate somehow a permanent legal relationship because it started with abduction. So Hamar speaks to Yaakov and to his children. And he describes the feelings that are going on. Listen to these words. Shembni nafshoi bevitchem. You ever heard the word cheshek? Cheshek. Cheshek. Shem, my son... His soul, uh, not lusts, longs, longs or desires. Cheshek means somebody has a cheshek for something. Yearning. They have a yearning. yearning. They pine. They thirst. A passion for it. It's not passion. Cheshek is a very strong desire. Shem, my son, Again, his soul. His soul yearns for your daughter. Do me a favor. Give her to him as a wife. 
Okay. Again, another expression. The children make a deal, you have to circumcise yourself. If you're ready to do that, we'll accept you. What happens? The young guy, Shechem, did not delay having his whole city circumcised. Why? Because he had a chafetz. You know what chafetz means? Chafetz, there's rotzen and there's chafetz. Rotzen is an external desire. And chafetz is primius rotzen, a very deep desire. For example, you may want to go shopping. You have a rotzen to go shopping, but you don't necessarily have a chafetz to go shopping. Simply, you need food or you need clothes, so there's no other way but to go shopping. But that's not your ultimate desire. Rotzen is something you want to do, but it's not necessarily an objective in and of itself. Chafetz is your primis rotzen, what you really want. Here it doesn't say Shechem wanted the daughter of Yaakov, it says Chafetz Bevas Yaakov, which Chafetz represents Pnimius Haratzim. So he did not delay it because he had a Chafetz in the daughter of Yaakov. And indeed he does it, and you know the end of the story, Shimon and Levi come on the third day, they kill out Shechem. Dina was abducted in the palace, they take her back because they didn't let Dina go out till then, and they bring her back home. Now, I just want to show you how far this goes. Can you give me a tanya? Yeah. I have a hand. Nobody would realize this. That's why you come to this class. It says in Tanya, when he speaks about the emotions of the soul, it says, listen to these words. If you meditate on God appropriately you will become inspired with tremendous love. What type of love? So the Alter Rebbe says, Bachasheka, Vachafeitza. Where did he get these words? Bachasheka, Vachafeitza. Where did he get these words? Vachasheka means with tremendous yearning. Vachafeitza means with desire. Shuka with longing. The nefesh Why did he choose these words? Chafeitza. Later in Tanya he uses the words, you want to connect to God, Bitveka with cleaving. Vachasheka with desire. Vachafeitza. And a deep desire, yearning desire. Where did he get all these words? So, the Rebbe wrote Rishima Santanya. He wrote uh, 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 footnotes on Tanya that were always in the Rebbe's draw. They were never published. And after Gimel Tamas, they were found in the draw. They were published. So, I saw over there, he says to look into Medrash and Parshas Vayishlach. The Medrash on Parshas Vayishlach says that God loved the Jews. God loves the Jews and expresses it in five different languages. In one place, he expresses it through the term Ahava, Ahafti. Another place, he expresses it through the term Dveikus, or connected. Another place, he expresses it in the term 
chafetz, I desire them. Another place he expresses it in the terms of cheshek, which is I yearn for them or I long for them. And the Medrash says, and all of them are to be found in the connection between Shechem and Dina. Shechem. Shechem was the father. And one is astonished. Adam and Chava, not a word. Avram and Sarah, not a word. Yitzchak and Rivka, one word. Not his soul was connected, and not his soul desired, and not his soul yearned, and not he wanted Tvekus, and not his nefesh. One word, Vayava, Yaakov and Rachel, also Vayav, Yaakov is Rachel, one word. Leia, less. And nobody else since. When it comes to Shechem and Dina, which at first glance, and not only at first glance, at second glance, it was a crime. Dina was a single woman. Shechem. Shechem abducted her against her will. He violated her. Suddenly you have all these expressions. It was a kidnapped situation. And the brothers went. And he didn't give her back. It's not that he gave her back. And then he came to negotiate. That he did shuvah. No, he kept her in the palace. And his father came to negotiate a deal to let her stay. But the whole time he stayed. And according to the Erechim, that's the reason they made war on Shechem. Why did they make war on Shechem? They weren't aggressors. There's different interpretations. According to their Rechaim and other Mepharshim, the reason they made war in Shechem was that people don't realize that this whole time, Dina was abducted. How do we know? Because it says when they fought Shechem and they killed Shechem, they took Dina from his house. In other words, she was not by them the whole time. Huh? That's a separate story. That says in the Medrash. But I'm saying what it says in Chumash. So what happens is they need to get her out. The only way they can get her out is they have to kidnap her back. But this is the leader of Shechem. He has the army. So it was basically a war against the government. Or whatever type of government it was. It wasn't a war with one individual. It was a war against the government. They understood that the whole city will come to defense. That was the system. So basically they went... And they fought and got thee now. But what's bothering us is, you could say that Shechem had a tremendous infatuation with her. We understand that's why he did it. But all these expressions, and to the extent that the Medrash says that all the terms that God loves Israel with are rooted in this story of Din Which ended up in a travesty. And a tragedy. It never materialized in a marriage. It could not. Shechem was killed. And Dina came back. So from this temporary uh, infatuation, I should say a stronger word, but I'll we'll use that word. From this, all these terms are born. That these terms of affection are not expressed in any other place in Tanakh, in any other marriage, and in any other relationship. Isn't that an interesting question? You don't think it's an interesting question? That's why I'm giving a class. Anybody has an answer for this? I think it's a mind-staggering question. No? We won't. We won't request commentary. You say that only Jews and non-Jews have love. What? No, I said. 
Oh, then maybe that's why there's intermarriage. <laughs> <laughs> she says because there was Jews and not Jews. So. <laughs> that's not a very promising answer, is it? Anybody wants to say anything? If not, I'm going to speak. So. Uh... <laughs> It speaks only about him. That's true. It doesn't say about Dina's feelings. That's true. It says only about him. But it describes his feelings in gl- granted, good point. But it describes his feelings in literally glorious romantic and such expressive terms and to, it's interesting that even in Tanya when Al-Tarebbe wants to describe the nature of a soul with God a relationship with the only God the terms that are used are from this story Dveikus Ava Chasheke and Chafetze another question is it keeps on saying that his soul was connected to her what does that mean, his soul? His body. At the surface, it seems like Shechem was Shechem, and Dina was Dina, and Shechem liked what he saw. So what does that do with Anashama? What does it do with Anashama? Every violator will say, my soul yearns for you. Really? Your soul or your body? Which one is it? But here the trader keeps on saying Nafsha. truth is that through this uh, drama, the Torah is conveying here one of the most important ideas about passion and about, more importantly, misplaced passion. And I'm going to explore it on two levels. One is a simple level, very simple. And one is more complex and psychoanalytical. First, the simple level. The trade is trying to say one lesson. And that is, often people one is Alpinigla, one is Alpichsidis. Alpinigla, the Pshat is one of the biggest problems that people get into is that they I don't want to say it the way I wanted to say it because it can create dysfunction. Um, it's good for people, I wanted to say it's not good for people to follow their passion, but that's wrong. It's good for people to follow their passion. It's important for people to follow their passion because if not, they don't live. But what's important is never to worship one's passions to the extent that they go unchallenged. Because there are moments in life when you can experience a tremendous obsession and feeling and passion towards something. At surface, that would mean that would mean that this is something that really belongs to you. It's something that ought to become your destiny. It's something that you will invest all your powers in. And you have to be very careful. Because here is a case of extraordinary passion, extraordinary feelings, 
and the feelings resulted in abducting and violating an innocent young woman, and ultimately in his death, his father's death, and in his whole family's death, and his whole city's death. That's one thing a person has to know. Feelings and passions and emotions are not only important, and not only powerful, but also um, uh, cherishable, beloved, because that's what gives life its oomph, its vitality, its energy, its zest. But nonetheless, one has to know that as humans, we can fall prey sometimes to very, very strong emotions that will destroy us rather than build us, which means ultimately they don't stem from the person's own deepest goodness because then they wouldn't destroy him or her. And at such moments, one has to be able to say no to very strong obsessions and feelings. And this happens constantly in life, especially in this area of Shechem and Dina. It's played out different people. They'll see a situation. As a result of what they see, their emotions will go on fire. If you interview them at the moment, they will swear that this is it. They found their ultimate happiness. Comes a Torah and says, don't make rash decisions. Because sometimes the deepest passions can be profoundly misplaced. And therefore, wait, create space, and so on and so forth. Because you may be making the mistake of your life if... You just say, this is my dveikas, this is my chasheka, this is my chafetza, this is it. Take it easy, relax. Especially when you see that the action of it will undermine a tremendous moral uh, code. And furthermore, you know that it can destroy what you have. So then be very wary of your passions, because they may be not the right guide. That's the pashtas. But to understand it a little deeper, it's really an elaboration of the first, but a little bit deeper, we'll have to introduce a story in Gemara which at surface is very strange. The Gemara tells a story that Rabbi Akiva had a wife, his name was Rach, her name was Rach. Rabbi Akiva lived in the time, a hundred years after, the, uh, 70 years after the destruction of the second base Amigdash. And he lived in the times of the Bar Kaichu revolt. You familiar with the Bar Kaichu revolt? Bar Kaichu revolted against the Romans successfully for a few years until he was crushed and Beitar, and that was the end of Jewish independence in Israel. What they called, what the Romans called Palestine. The representative of Rome in Judea was a man named Turnus Rufus. Turnus Rufus. Okay. Four syllables. Turnus Rufus. And Turnus Rufus, in the tradition of the Roman representatives in other countries, would often hold debates between the Roman thinkers and the Jewish thinkers, which happened in different countries. When one country conquered another country, their representatives there, their ambassadors there, their governors there, would hold debates with the local culture. Rabbi Akiva was the greatest sage of Israel, so Turnus Rufus led many a debate with Rabbi Akiva. Turnus Rufus had a beautiful wife, the Gemara says. Physically, she was beautiful. One day, Turnus Rufus comes home and he's depressed. So his wife, in the tradition of a spouse, says, You look to be in a bad you look it looks like you're in a bad mood. So Turnus Rufus. <laughs> Tunis Rufus said, I actually am. That was the miracle here. (laughs) 
he admitted that instead of getting angry at her, which is <laughs> often the case, right? Here you go again. You're in a bad mood. You're miserable. So you're projecting, that's called sophistication, to Nisrufus actually accepted. He said, yes, I'm in a very bad mood. So she said, of course, why? So he said, Rabbi Akiva wins every debate. Every debate between me and him, Rabbi Akiva wins. So she says, who is Rabbi Akiva? He says he's an extraordinary personality. His moral stature is, is powerful and his wisdom is profound. And every debate we have, he comes out on top. And it's very embarrassing. So to Nisrufus, his wife says, listen to this, the Gemara says, with my beauty, I will defeat him morally. Intellectually, I won't defeat him. But morally, I will show that he's a promiscuous, spineless, immoral man. So her husband says, okay, go ahead. So Nasrufus's wife does what people in this situation do, as far as dressing up and so forth. And she comes to meet Rabbi Akiva. And her obje- we know her objective. Rabbi Akiva doesn't know her objective. We know what her objective is. Her objective is one thing. She wants to lure Rabbi Akiva into a trap and defeat him morally and show that basically when it comes to one reality is the seichel in the earth. His mind is in the earth. All the intellectualism and philosophy and morality in one issue is worthless. Rabbi Akiva sees the life of Tunus Rufus. And she presents herself in all of her charm and glory on many levels. Zagda Gemara, listen to this. Rabbi Akiva takes a look at her and he responds in three ways, without a word. The first thing is, he turns around and he spits. The second thing is he starts weeping. When he finishes weeping, he starts laughing. This, the wife of Turnus Rufus did not expect. She didn't know what to expect. She she thought she knew what to expect. This, she was completely dumbfounded by. He spits, he cries, and then he starts laughing. So she says, Rabbi Akiva, what's the meaning behind what you did? Now, don't get offended now, because remember why she came. So she deserved it. Don't get offended for women's honor now, honors now. Rabbi Akiva said, I spit because I looked at you and I remember where you come from. You come from a tiposrucha. It says in Perkeyavis that every person's body comes from putrid, putrid, uh, a putrid drop that actually rots and the whole body comes from there and it, it, it gave me this uncomfortable feeling that I had to spit out of my system now this was of course Rabbi Akiva's very subtle way of telling her something else which he probably didn't want to say explicitly so he spoke about the origin of a human body fine why did I cry I knew that one day you're going to die, like everybody, and you're beautiful. And I'm crying for the body that's going to decompose and experience decadence under the earth. This face, this body, 
this physique will one day be eaten by worms. I started to cry. So she says, why did you laugh? He says, that I'm not going to tell you. That I'm not going to tell you. The wife of Tunisrufus was a brilliant woman. She went home and she could not be at peace with herself. Because for the first time in her life, somebody stood up to her and challenged her to her core. And she saw the way he dealt with her. He spoke about her past and he spoke about her future. So she was completely restless. A while later, her husband died. She became a Jew. She converted. A while later, Rabbi Akiva's wife passed away. And you know what happened? Rabbi Akiva married the wife of Tunis Rufus. He said, that's why I was laughing. That's why he was laughing. He was laughing because of that. What's the meaning of the story? How would we understand the story? And the Gemara famously makes says the expression. It's a beautiful expression. The same mattresses that she once spread out in a prohibited way, she now spread out in a permissible way. The same mattresses she once offered him in a prohibited way, she now offered in a permissible way. Now, at surface, it looks like a story. Fine, Rabbi Akiva withstood the test, and the the, 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 the mockery of his of nature, right? He ends up marrying her. Shine. But the MS is that this story tells us the story of Shechem and Dina on a new level. Now here, we have to understand what it says in Kabbalah. There's a very powerful idea that says in Kabbalah. Dina and Shechem were both reincarnated. They both had reincarnations. But their Gilgulim traveled over many generations. When Dina was taken back home, you know who she married? She married Shimon. And they had a boy, right? Huh? Asnas, a daughter. The daughter she had with Shem Asnas would marry Yosef in Egypt. It's a separate story. But here we're talking about the son that she had with Shimon. This, this boy's name was, the Torah calls him Shaul ben HaKnanis. Why is she called Knanis? Because she had relations with the Canaanite Shem. This son of Shimon and Dina became the leader of the tribe of Shimon. And he's known as Shaul, he's known as Shlumiel ben Surishadai, and he's known as Zimri ben Salu. Do you remember the story with Zimri? Zimri at the end of the, in the desert, what happens with Zimri? 
Zimri becomes infatuated with a woman named Cosby. This is in Parshas Bullock. And, and Zimri and Cosby publicly engage in physical relations. Pinchas is horrified. Zimri is a Jewish prince. Cosby was a Midianite princess. And this was a public display between Zimri and Cosby. What did Pinchas do? He took a spear in his hand, then he killed Zimri and Cosby. He went to Moshe first. And he told Moshe, look what's happening. What did Moshe say? Moshe was crying. So Pinchas says, Moshe, do something. Moshe is crying. So Pinchas says, If somebody does this, halachically, if it's at the moment, you can strike him down. After that, you have to go to court. So Moshe says, the one who reads the letter, let him be the one who writes the letter. The one who reads the letter, let him be the messenger. And Pinchas kills them. What's the word used for how he killed? Reimach, which means a spear. Reish memchas. It says in Kabbalah that uh, Zimri, who was the son of Shimon, was the Gilgal of Shechem. Cosby had a spark of Dina in her. In Gilgulim, sometimes it works with sparks, which means not, it's not the whole soul goes into a whole body, because a soul has many different dimensions. Now, the Al-Sheikh, the Al-Sheikh is one of the great biblical commentators, he says something very powerful. He says, the reason it says, his soul was connected to Dina was, so the Al-Sheikh says that Shechem's neshama had a connection to Dina's soul. It wasn't just body to body. It wasn't just an external craving. Their souls were connected. And that's where the Torah goes out of its way to describe the depth of the feelings. Why? The reason is because the depth of the feelings came from a true space. What was the true place? That Shechem and Dina's souls were connected. So you'll say, if that's the case, why is it such a horrible story? That's the whole point of the story. The whole point of the story is... And this is one of the key issues people have to understand. You may be experiencing something very real. You're usually experiencing something very real and very genuine. And that's legitimizing in your eyes the way it's expressing itself, the outlet. But really, really what you're doing is you're distancing yourself from what you're looking for. I'll explain that in a moment. So now bear with me. So Zimri and Cosby are connected, are attracted to each other because Dina and Shechem. This is the next generation. Pinchas Pinchas was hunted down by a woman named Izevel. Izevel was a reincarnation of Cosby. So she hated Pinchas. And therefore when Pinchas becomes Eliyahu, she tries to murder Eliyahu. Izevel tries to murder him because she wanted to take revenge. Now, how many people of the tribe of Shimon died in the plague after Zimri, the tribe of Shimon went to live with the Midianites, they died in the plague? 24,000. Why 24,000? When Shechem's city converted, uh, circumcised, and the whole city converted, how many people lived in Shechem? 24,000. The members of the tribe of Shimon were a Gilgal of the 24,000 people of Shechem. 
Why? They all became Jews in the next Gilgal. The fascinating thing is, God does not ignore the effort of any individual. It happens to be that the entire city of Shechem, who were not guilty for the rape, they agreed to go into a bris and to become members of a covenant with Yaakov Avin. They were killed by Shimon and Levi, but they were reincarnated as members of Shevet Shimon. And they were already Jews by the time they died? Because they had that bris? On, on some level, they were beginning that process. So they have a connection between this and Rabbi Akiva? One second, one second. Okay. So they are the members of Shimon, and Shimon, as we said, had a son, who was the reincarnation of Shechem, who was Zimri, who went to Cosby. There's an old uh, joke, why did Shimon and Levi have to circumcise Shechem? It's not a joke, actually. Why did Shimon and Levi have to circumcise Shechem? They, they could have gone and killed them. The answer is they knew, if you kill a city of Jews, nobody will protest. <laughs> if they wouldn't be circumcised, the United Nations, the United Nations will right away get the Security Council together. They'll condemn everybody. But once it's Jews, okay, they deserve it. They did it to themselves. It's an old vart. It's funny. It's not such a joke. So there's 24. Now. It continues further, but I want to get here to my point because Mekanzitsa and Agansa talk about that. So you have Dina and Shechem, you have Zimri and Cosby, you have the 24,000 uh, members of Shimon, you have Ezevel and Pinchas. Where was the Tikkun of Shechem and Dina completed? Rabbi Akiva and the wife of Turnus Rufus. Rabbi Akiva had a nitzot of Shechem, who was the son of Chamer, and she had a nitzot of Dina. That's why the Gemara says that Rabbi Akiva told his students, when I was an ignorant person, you would give me a Talmud Chachem and I would bite him like a donkey. They said, Rabbi, why like a donkey, not like a dog? He says, one bites and breaks a bone. One bites and doesn't break a bone. And I would bite and break a bone. Why did he compare himself to Chamer? Because the Nitzvah of Shechem was the son of Chamer. Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students. They were the same 24,000 people of Shimon who were the 24,000 people of Shechem. Their main problem was, the main Nisayan of Shechem was they allowed rape, Znus. What is the ultimate crime of that? It's not just the act, it's what it represents. And that is no respect for the other person, no respect for their individuality. What happened by them in a much more refined way? They didn't respect each other. Now, Rabbi Akiva, how did he, how did he fulfill the tikkun? Very simple. When Tunis Rufus came before his eyes, when the wife of Tunis came before Rabbi Akiva's eyes, it was a situation, a potential, of the story of Shechem and Dina happening again. Rabbi Akiva was a married man. Of Cosby and Zimri happening again. Well, that didn't happen. That was the opportunity. What was the uniqueness of Rabbi Akiva? He saw her, and he understood what she represents. The first thing is he spit. The second thing, he cried. The third thing, he laughed. What did Rabbi Akiva understand? What he understood was something that many people don't understand. In life, there are three experiences. They're called Olam, Shana, Nefesh. Any moment of life is a convergence of three energies. Time, space, and spirit, or soul. 
For example, right now, there's a moment. The moment is 10.20 a.m. Wednesday morning. Right? That's the moment. You live in this moment right now. The moment passed already, but you were living in this moment. <laughs> now we're living in the next moment and so forth. It's sad, but that's how it goes. Space. You're here. You're in this space. You're in 770. You're in the women's section. You're sitting on a comfortable bench on your royal thrones and enjoying yourself. Space. But there's a third element. Soul. What's soul? There's time and there's space. But then there's the soul that you bring into the time and space. Who you are. Who's here. Every person has a soul. Every person has an energy. You bring your energy into the room that you're in. You know that? You know that you bring your energy into the room you're in? Nefesh, Rosh Hashanah, Oshon, Har Sinai, Oshon, the Mount of Sinai, smoke. What's the smoke from? Whenever you get these three right, you create a lot of good smoke. Ah, Olam Shana Nefesh. Olam is space, the world. Shana is a year, time. Nefesh is soul. Now, not always do the three things converge. Sometimes two converge, sometimes none of them converge. For example, uh, Mendel Futtefas once said, okay, it's a little bit, uh, you know, especially if you get it, you get it, if not, he says, uh, I meet somebody, this is the person I wanted to connect to, I wanted to speak to, this is before cell phones, so it wasn't so easy always. This is the person I wanted to connect to, I wanted to speak to. And uh, and it's a great time, it's a great time. But as Rebendel said, it's in mikveh. It was in the mikveh, in the man's mikveh. He said, it's not the right place. Sometimes I meet the right person, and we're walking on the island, there's a bench. So it's the right place, it's the right person. But it's Erev Yom Kippur in the afternoon. It's not the right time. He says, sometimes you're in the right place, and it's the right time. It's perfect. Perfect for an intimate connection. But it's not the right person. <laughs> and that becomes a little bit of a problem. <laughs> it's very good, but I don't have the person. It's another person. Or on a deeper level, the person may be there, but their energy is not there. There's nobody there. They're full of masks. So you have is you have time, you have space, but you don't have soul. Sometimes you have soul and time, but the space is not conducive. Sometimes you have space and you have soul, but the time is not conducive. Kids are screaming. You got to make dinner. And if you abandon that responsibility for the relationship, there's something wrong. Something wrong. It's called obsession. Oilam shana nefesh together is unique. Dina and Shem had a very deep connection. But it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right time. Zimri and Cosby had a deep connection. That's why Moshe didn't do anything. Because Moshe knew too much. People who know too much sometimes um, uh, become uh, paralyzed because they see too much. Right, right. But Moshe could not oppose it like Pinchas did. This is what the Meir Shilayach writes, because he knew the soul of Zimri and Cosby. Pinchas looked at it halachically, black and white. This is evil. 
He took a roimach, a spear. In Kriyashma, how many words are there in Kriyashma? 248. Roimach. Reish So Pinchas, what did he kill Zimri and Cosby with? He killed them, it says, with the 248 words of Krishna. Rabbi Akiva was also killed. Which words was he saying? Shema. Now, let's understand this. When Rabbi Akiva meets Tunisrufus' wife, right, she thought Rabbi Akiva is a man. You know, men. They're often men, women, they're weak people. People are weak. Some people are weak, not everybody. Some people are weak. Especially if they don't know who they are, they're very weak. She expected that with her charisma and beauty and charm and depth, she'll get Rabbi Akiva and that will be the end of him, morally. So what happens is, this is where it happens. Rabbi Akiva looks at her. Rabbi Akiva looks at her. And what does he see? He sees everything. But he knows she's married to Tunus Rufus. <laughs> He's married to Rachel. What does that mean? Here we come into the concept of idolatry. What is idolatry? Why is Judaism so against idolatry? What do we care if you worship a tablet, a wall, a picture? Who cares? What's wrong with idolatry? The problem with idolatry is really a problem that's very, very prevalent in life. Idolatry means, now listen to this, you're looking for something. Why are you worshipping something? You're looking to worship something. You're looking for something. The problem of idolatry is twofold. The place that you went to, to satisfy what you're searching for, will never satisfy it. So two things will happen. Number one, You won't cultivate that which you have to cultivate in order to satisfy your desire. Number two, you're actually cultivating a lie instead of it in the hope of satisfying your desire. That will never be able to satisfy your desire. And therefore it will only intensify the void even more because you're looking to the wrong place. Let me give an example in friendships. I don't know if everybody will relate, but I'm sure some of you, especially if you remember your high school years. But this really travels through life with some people. Um, uh, People sometimes get obsessed with somebody else. What do you mean obsessed? They can't be without them. They follow them and they talk to them and they schmooze with them and they have to go everywhere with them. And when they see this person becomes friends with somebody else, it destroys them and they cry at night and they call up. And they have to completely feel complete exclusively anybody knows what I'm talking about I'm sure some of you high school maybe you still have it but uh, this is a phenomenon in, in human life it's not spoken about a lot because it's not very comfortable it's called obsessions with people sometimes it's between uh, gender, opposite genders but very often it's in the same gender uh, probably uh, quite often as well so it's not necessarily uh, all about one issue it's emotional stuff person gets addicted to somebody else. There's addiction to alcohol, there's addiction to nicotine, there's addiction to uh, other things, and then there's addiction to addiction to people. And when you become addicted to a person, 
sometimes the addiction runs so deep that they can't imagine being without them and they can't imagine letting go of them and they can't stand when the person connects with somebody else and it may undermine their own relationship. If you speak to them and you say, what is going on? They say, I'm just crazy about this person and I need them for my life. I want them for my life. It can sound healthy. What's happening is, this is classic idolatry. Why are you obsessed with somebody else? They have their life. Why are you obsessed with them? Why aren't you obsessed with yourself? Take care of yourself. Pshat is, there's something in you that you don't like. There's something in you that's bothering you. You see something in that person that, uh, that you want, that satisfies you. Whatever it may be, it may be a quality that you crave for, it may be the way they deal with something that you crave for, it may be an energy you can get from them that in your mind will fill the void. The problem is nobody can ever fill your void, only you can fill your void. How can I fill your void? I'm not you. So by actually feeding off me or feeding off this person, you're distancing yourself from ever filling your void, because momentarily you're satisfying yourself. But as time goes on, nothing really changed because you never worked on yourself. That's the problem of idolatry. Idolatry means you worship something. You're looking for something genuine. But where you're looking for it is completely wrong. That's why it says that Avram, before he started to worship God, he was entrenched in idolatry. Why is it relevant that he was entrenched in idolatry? If he wasn't entrenched in idolatry, it wouldn't be good. It means he wasn't looking for something. People who are not looking for anything, they don't have a void. If you don't have a void, you'll never find God. The fact that Avram was entrenched in idolatry is because he had a void. He was searching for something. Something was missing. So he looked and he looked and he looked and he looked. Ah, he found it in an idol. But then he realized the search is a genuine search. But this, the, what, what, you're, what, you're, uh, what, what you're possessing, what you're possessed by, that is an idol. What does it mean it's an idol? It's a false god. It's not the god that you're looking for. So it's taking you away from two things. Number one, the real God. And number two, it's not really satisfying you. And that's the whole story of Rebbe Akiva and Ternasrufus and Dina and Shechem. My soul may be connected to a certain person. My soul may be connected to a certain reality. And it may be extremely deep. And that's what the Chumash is telling you here. There's two approaches in life, and this is the, one of the great contributions of the Baal Shem Tov. There's two approaches in life. One is appro- one of the approaches, the best thing is to be a technician, a technocrat, and a robot. Which means don't be a free spirit or a bohemian or let your emotions flail. Only get you into trouble. Those here who are free spirits and have a lot of emotions know how much trouble it got them into. Why? If you don't have feelings and you're a dead man walking, life is much better. Somebody told me about a certain city that in that city they behave as though they died already and that way there's no problems. That way there's no problems. In other words, this is the black and white model of life. Black and white is, emotions should be allowed in a very, very uh, limited and shrinked way and and, and limited way and confined way and that way everybody is safe. Another approach is this is killing life. You have to feel your emotions. These are two very different approaches. It's called Toyu and Tikkun, chaos and balance. So how does one deal with it? The story of Shechem and Dina gives the approach to the answer of this question. And that is, 
Freedom of emotions? Absolutely yes. Free spirit? Absolutely yes. But, 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 don't, don't pursue every passion as long as you did not excavate it to its core, as long as you're sure you're not worshipping idolatry, as long as you're not sh- uh, short-circuiting, right? That's the word? Short-circuiting the experience by misplacing the time, the place, or the energy. Because if you do that, Dina and Shem, everybody gets destroyed. So the very goodness that was behind your search will never be realized because you worshipped idolatry. So when you have a passion, when you have a very deep energy, when something is triggering something very deep, there's two approaches. One approach is repression. I told you to stop feeling and you wouldn't have any problems. Another approach is complete pursuit and engagement, which can often be very, very complicated. Some of people's worst troubles and woes. Parshas Vayishlach tells another story. What's the story? Shechem has very, very deep emotions. Tvekas, This should be pursued. And yet, the way it was pursued brought havoc and destruction. Why? Because he didn't have Rabbi Akiva's insight. He didn't understand. The passion is there. The void is there. But if you're not going to have the right time, the right place, the right person, the right energy, your very void will never be fulfilled. It will only cause more destruction. Sometimes it means you have to wait. You don't want to wait because you're obsessed. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. Be truthful. Sometimes you don't have to wait, but it's not the right person. It's not the right energy. It's not here. It's not there. Sometimes you have to go deeper into it. And that's where Rabbi Akiva understood. And therefore he cries. He spits. Why does he spit? It's his wife. <laughs> now he had to spit. Because if he wouldn't spit now, he would not be able to laugh later. You understand what I'm saying? People who don't know how to cry today don't know how to laugh when you have to laugh. If you always want to laugh, even in the beginning, then you'll end up crying. It depends how you go. You could People start laughing and they end up crying. Rabbi Akiva started with a spit and then with a cry. So later he could laugh. But that took a tremendous, tremendous... Uh, a discipline for him. Now we'll understand why the Tanya uses these terms to describe the relationship with God. What's the connection? Because this is really at the core of understanding a person's relationship with Hashem. People are looking, if I ask you, what do you want in life? What are you really looking for in life? People are looking for lots of things. Especially deeper people, more mature people, and more emotional people. What are you looking for? What are you really looking for? It's not such an easy question to answer because we have immediate needs, but what are we really looking for? What is one truly looking for? So when the Alter Rebbe describes the meditation you need in order to develop a relationship with Hashem, he uses the terms that Shechem uses. Why? Why? Use what Yitzchak used with Rivka. Why Shechem and Dina? Because in a very subtle and sophisticated way, He's explaining the drama of the human psyche. The person is really searching for God. 
even the idols that we're worshipping is searching for God. We just think we're going to find God in different places, in different venues, in different outlets. Even a person, I'll go so far to say, although I'm not going to explain it, even if you're craving food, what you're really craving is God. There's a void you're trying to fill. I'm not saying the body simply has to eat for nutrition. Even that. But any craving a person has, if you'll go deep enough, you'll see. What you're looking for is, you want, you want the truth. You're looking for God. That's the real truth. But it's not presented that way. In our own psyche, it's not presented that way. So that's what he's expressing. That's what you have to understand about your soul. Just like Shechem. Shechem had a very, very deep passion because there was something in Dina that he needed, that he wanted. There was something very real there. But the tragedy was, the way he went about that completely undermined him. And that's the story of the human soul. It's exactly the same story. That the search is often very pure. It's also very, very genuine. But the way he went about it, the way a person goes about it, the way they access it, based on short-sightedness, often based on fear, and most importantly based on uh, laziness and an unwillingness to get to the essence of things, they short-circuit themselves and they put in the plug. And what happens is the voltage, a spark comes out, but then the machine is ruined for life. You got your spark. <laughs> you got your spark, but you didn't have your kalim. And since you didn't have your kalim, the machine is ruined for life. I remember a husband once shared with me on this soyan he had, he bought, he got for his wedding, or he bought a new stereo system. Those were the days when people used tapes. Aleyem HaShalom. Do you remember? <laughs> they used tapes. So he got this beautiful big stereo system, and uh, and he went to Israel after his wedding with his wife, and uh, and in Israel the voltage is different, right? It's 110 rather than two, uh, 220, whatever. So now they have most machines have converters, so it automatically converts it. But this wasn't that. So you had to get a converter to put it in the wall. His wife didn't know. Well, he told her and she didn't understand, whatever it was. So, uh, and it was a very, very expensive piece. So she put it into the wall, and the spark went up. Don't get scared, don't worry, nothing happened. Spark went up, and it was dead. It was killed. It was dead. <laughs> so he told me that his natural instinct was to start screaming, to start hollering. But he didn't. He was quiet. He was silent. So uh, he challenged his instinct and he remained quiet. I told him the Maisa with the Balshamtiv, you know probably the story. Balshamtiv had a student who collected money for many years to buy a beautiful asterisk. They were very poor. And when he came home, his wife says, what, Where did you get this money? And he said, I put away all this money. She said, We always needed money in the house. And she took the asterisk and she threw it on the floor and the pit and broke. The pit and broke, so it was possible. So for years he was collecting money, putting away pennies to buy the asterisk, and now she threw it down and it became possible. 
whose instinct was to start screaming, whatever, to do something else. But he contained himself and he said, you know what, you're probably right. What you did was Malmaila to show me that I don't deserve such an Esra. So the Baal Shem Tev said that since the Nisayan of the Akedah, there was no strong Nisayan for this person not to get angry at his spouse. And he passed it. At Kedekach. Rabbi Isaac Hummeler once said that he saw the godless of the Alter Rebbe, that he was in a base Amerikas in a bathing house, and his back was to the people who was getting dressed. There were then public bathing houses. There were no showers in, in houses. And somebody came in. And he didn't know who the Alter Rebbe was. He thought it was a friend. So he banged him on his back. How are you? Which is, you know, men do. How are you? He gave him a bang. And the Alter Rebbe didn't turn around. In other words, the Alter Rebbe understood that the person no, person doesn't think it's him, and if he would turn around, it would be his chassid, the guy would bury himself from shame. So he said the self-control that he saw, because instinctively, if somebody slaps you, you don't have a choice, you have to turn around. Try it. <laughs> Slap someone, go like this or something, they have to turn around. It's a knee-jerk reaction, it's a reflex. The self-control he had to be able not to turn around, so the person never knew it was the Alter person never knew was the Alter Rebbe because he knew the shame it's going to bring to that person. That ability to have such self-control over a person's life was extraordinary. So one opinion is you need self-control in order to live a responsible life. The Chiddush of Chassidus, the Chiddush of Ayishlach was much deeper. And that is that even if you want to explore your true passions and your ultimate passions, don't confuse that with a life of squandering energy, which is very often the case very passionate people. They go all over the place and everyone feeds off them and they feed off everybody, especially people that they're connected to. But those connections are experienced as idols, as idolatry. And that's the story of Shechem and Dina. Until Rabbi Akiva, who understood that if you want to ultimately laugh, you have to be able to know how to spit and you have to be able to know how to cry. Spitting means rejecting. Spitting is a metaphor for rejection. Ultimate rejection. Two. It's not even reject. It's the deeper rejection. There's rejecting. I reject you, and there's rejection. I reject you within myself. That's much deeper. You understand the difference? Telling somebody no is already a relationship. You gave them the luxury, and you gave them the ability to say. You gave them the ownership to tell them no. Spitting is lahevel v'larik in aleinu. Why do we spit by aleinu? Why do you spit? You don't like it, so say you don't like it. Saying to you I don't like it is already a relationship. And that's why, wonder of wonders, when Petifer's wife tries to engage Yosef, what does Yosef tell her? I can't do it. Why can't I do it? So he tells her, If I do it, I will sin to God. So it says, why didn't he tell her, We will sin to God. She was a married woman. For her, Yosef was single. She was married. He should have told her, we will sin to God. For her, it's also a sin. One of the Sheva Mitzvahs, B'nai Nayach, is adultery. Why didn't he tell her it's a sin for you, not just a sin for me? The answer is, he didn't even want to put himself with her in the category, in the statement of saying, we will sin. That we was already falling prey to her. Even though what he's telling her is, we can't do it because we will sin. Aha, together we're moral. That's also dangerous. We're together, we're moral. No, we're not together in anything. We're not together. Who does Yosef end up marrying? Her daughter. Why did Paitifa want Yosef? 
because she saw her neshama is connected to her. Yosef was like Rabbi Akiva. The first thing is he spit. Later he could laugh. If Rabbi Akiva would laugh then, what would have happened? Poitifa would have been destroyed. Poitifa's wife would have been destroyed. And Yosef would have been destroyed. And that would be the end of it. Yosef understood what Rabbi Akiva would understand. And Akiva is Ben Yosef. Akiva's father was Yosef. So he's connected to Yosef. And who does Dina, who's Dina's daughter from us? Not from, Dina, when Shechem violated Dina, she became pregnant. Who did she give birth to? Asnas. Who did Asnas marry? Yosef. Because Yosef was a result of the relationship between Dina and Shechem that was realized through Asnas, but couldn't be realized through them because Shechem was killed. Who could pick up on that energy? Asnas. Why? Because Yosef said no to Petifra's wife. Yosef had the courage, he had the ability to say no. Not because Yosef didn't believe in having joy of life. On the contrary, Yosef is filled with joy and he's filled with chen and he's filled with grace. And that's the point. There's really two philosophies in life and both of them are, are out of place. One philosophy in life is never laugh, never laugh. We're not interested in passion. We're not interested in celebration. We're not interested in laughter. That's one philosophy. The opposite philosophy in life is, if I'm not going to laugh now, what's the point of life? I want to laugh now. The story of Dina and Shechem teaches us a third approach. Laugh with all your body and all your soul. Laugh with every fiber of your being. Suck the marrow out of life. But if you want to really be able to laugh tomorrow, you have to sometimes have to be able to cry today. The Jew remembers Shiramalis but Shiva Shemes Shivasiya Nayino Kikholmim Oz Yimali Shaik Pinoshana. Then tomorrow our mouths will be filled with laughter and our tongues with song and celebration. The name of the first Jewish child, the first person to be born as a Jew is Yitzchak. What does Yitzchak mean? He will laugh. Not Sochak, not he laughed. Not Soichik, he laughs. Yitzchak, he will laugh. Because here's the deal. If I laugh today, I may cry tomorrow. Yosef could have laughed today. Rabbi Akiva could have laughed today, but he would have cried tomorrow. But sometimes if I'm ready to contain myself and discipline myself today, then I can laugh tomorrow. Yitzchak. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.